morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday series. Uh, it's been a uh, almost a year that we have been doing these, and I think we're well received. We we get over two hundred people every week, and uh, we're trying to decide uh, for you know how many more weeks do we keep doing this. And so your input, just you know, send a little message on the chat. How often do you want this? Every week, all the way through May, June. Uh, Dr. Shriver said he'll do it every day in August if that's needed. Uh, I'm just teasing you, John. That actually is not what he said, <laughs> but every week. So we will be here to provide the service and, of education and information and, uh, and a place for ideas to be shared by you with us uh, in terms of how to take care of your patients and focus on COVID-19, but other aspects of care as well. Now, today we have, uh, I think, a, a really, really good session. John will, of course, give his uh, usual wonderful update on the reality, where we are, where we're going, uh, and some new insights. So I'm looking forward to this presentation today. But we also have uh, one of our new members of the Connecticut Children's Family, Dr. James Enos, who's a cardiologist. I'll, I'll introduce him when right before he starts, and I'll mention, I'll tell you where he's coming from. Um, he was in Miami. He's kind of wondering, you know, that bad weather in Miami in, in January and February, I think it's like a horrible 78 degrees and sunny. So here's in Connecticut, 26 degrees. So may, maybe there's something about the way he thinks. So I'm just teasing about that, of course. But you'll meet James and uh, I think you, you'll find that he's gonna be terrific. So we'll hear about cardiac issues, which is a big issue that uh, most of the pediatricians are asking us about. When do you do an echo? When do you do an EKG? Should we do an MRI on somebody? And that's gonna be a, a fruitful conversation. So uh, uh, hang in there. We're getting to the right place, and I'm going to ask John to come up here and give his presentation, and then we'll follow that with Dr. Enos and then the questions. Take care. Thank you, uh, Juan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, welcome, Connecticut, and uh, the rest of New England as I untangle my glasses from my, uh, from my mask here. Thank you. Um, and... Uh, welcome everyone. It's been, uh, I won't say it's been a pleasure to be here all this year, but I think it's been necessary and I've enjoyed learning about this community, this wonderful community, and uh, we've enjoyed serving you and hopefully we'll continue to do that in the coming weeks. There's a lot going on. I'm really pleased we're getting follow-up by cardiology. I will say um, my wife is from New Orleans and uh, we lived in Cleveland, Minneapolis, and New England. So we never went back, and I, I know around this time of year, she does get that sort of seasonal, you know, I really need warm. So, you know, you came from Miami, and uh, we'll have to understand that thought process a little bit better as we get to know you. So um, there's a lot going on. I'm trying to advance the slide, and it won't let me do it. Here we go. So um, the marathon is on, the race to vaccinate. I love this. this is from the Louisiana State Health Department. I love this just because you've got although we haven't reached this age group yet in Connecticut, um, just that look of energy. I got vaccinated and let's get going. So I really love this state health department um, look and uh, uh, certainly a lot of states are starting to get it and the vaccinations have really ramped up and I do think acceptance of the vaccine is improving. So um, we were in a steep decline of new cases and this is where you look at the head of the CDC who's on TV looking very anxious. And the reason is, is the decline has leveled off. And, um, you know, uh, we're still thousands of new cases every day. And in my opinion, I just wish we had taken another month of mandates and restrictions and really ramp up the immunizations and then loosened up a little bit, but it is what it is. And we don't know whether this is a new resurgence. Is it a leveling off? Uh, it doesn't represent the new, more contagious variants spreading around. We simply don't know. 
we're going to have to watch this very carefully. And I do have some comments about how I think we could be doing a little bit better in, in some of our uh, government, local governments. But it is what it is. We'll watch this closely. Uh, we are not out of the woods yet. Um, the death rate's dropping in the United States, but it looks like, you know, if you, if you carry this out in the best scenarios, we're still around 550 to 600,000 deaths at the end of this. It just boggles the mind. And um, once again, every time I look at this, I just think of loved ones um, who've disappeared for families. And so this is a very big deal. And when we're through this, um, this will be one of the events in United States history that will be remembered forever. It's a lot of deaths. The highest death rates, interestingly, are concentrated really in a few states. And, you know, New Mexico and the Dakotas, we know, um, uh, Southeast, particularly Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and then New England, um, but not Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, but the big states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, have been particularly hard hit, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So the highest death rates are concentrated in a few states. And interestingly, I'm not sure we understand this. Um, some of the states had strong mandates. The Dakotas had not so strong mandates for public health, yet um, you know, we had sort of similar high death rates. So something that we'll need to investigate in the future. Internationally, there are dramatic differences in death rates. I think the caveat is you, the data coming in from some of the countries you don't fully understand. Mexico appears to have a, an extremely high death rate uh, per capita. It's not understood, and you can go down the list. Italy, we know, was hard hit, the worst in the EU. The United States falls sort of down at the 2% total mortality uh, category, um, and in uh, which is a lot, uh, it's much more than influenza, which is around 0.1%, but we're not the worst in the world. There are other countries that have appeared to have suffered case fatality rates, uh, deaths per 100,000 that are much higher than, than we. So in the United Kingdom, especially um, up there. So uh, these are things, again, poorly understood. The data is flawed in some of the countries, but if you look at the EU and us, you know, we're certainly not the worst uh, in terms of deaths per 100,000, which is interesting. Connecticut improvements are leveling off, um, and uh, I, I think we just need to understand this. We have still hundreds of new cases per day. It's much, much better than it was in January, but it is not going down to the last August-type levels. It has leveled off, and we need to watch this very closely. Um, I can say, uh, honestly, I would wish that all of our government leaders would take a deep breath and perhaps continue uh, being very cautious for another few weeks until we get our immunization rates a little higher. That is not the case, but it's certainly my wish as a public health person that that's what I would desire. Connecticut cases per 100,000 um, continued to decline, but it stalled out. You may, I could show you last week's map, it's pretty similar to this. And honestly, we're hovering around two to 3% test positivity, depending on the day. You'd like it at 1%, and I would like these numbers all at 10 or lower. So we're not there. There's still significant community spread, so keep up precautions. And I know the governor's loosening up a lot of restrictions, but everyone needs to understand these numbers are not where we would like them to be yet. The deaths are down, and I think one of the optimistic things I see happening is even if we do have a resurgence, We've immunized a lot of the most vulnerable, and we continue to accelerate that. And I believe that our death rates associated with a resurgence will be lower 
than we have seen in the past as we immunize our most vulnerable. So I think I'm optimistic that we'll have good news, even if we do have a temporary resurgence. The wild card continues to be spread of more contagious variants in the U.S. This is a gross underestimated some CDC data from a couple of days ago. The U.K. strand is B117. Uh, there's, it's all over the country and it's in 50 states, but we really don't know the extent of it yet. And is it driving that plateau that we're seeing in the United States now? Don't know. The South African strain, 1351, and the Brazilian strain, P1, are around, but don't seem to be as plentiful. And that's good because those are the two strains and where the vaccine efficacy has dropped in clinical trials. So Right now, you know, if we can immunize, 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 and really tamp down on transmission, I'm optimistic the South African and Brazilian strains won't take off, but that could change. And uh, when you see some of the behavior in, in Texas, for example, which I'm going to talk about, uh, I worry that we could be encouraging spread of the more, uh, I guess I'll call them the more resistant variants, 1351 and P1. And you can see this, it's in all the states. This is the UK strain, which our vaccines take care of quite nicely. And, you know, the states that have a lot of spread, Florida, Texas, California, are the ones that, ha that have the UK strain uh, that's more dominant there. And it's going to continue to increase. The race to vaccinate is getting better. We did 2 million doses uh, in the last day, each day, the last couple of days. And um, this is already out of date, over 100 million doses delivered. Well, I think it's 80 million now have been administered and about 15, 16, 17% of the population. This is good. And I'm going to show you um, this has accelerated the time frame that we're going to hit getting to herd immunity. So I think this is good news. Um, a number of states are taking this very seriously. If you look at the percent of population more than 18, because remember, the vaccines are mostly licensed for 18 and above, 20% of Americans have gotten one dose uh, or more. So uh, we're getting there. And, and if we can continue to accelerate this and get the vaccine out, um, I think this will be a very good thing for the U.S. And the herd immunity curve is getting better. You may remember 70% a few weeks ago I showed you was really into September. We're moving it down because we're doing 2 million doses, immunizing 2 million people a day. So, you know, we could be in a good place if we can accelerate this. Over the summer, uh, we could be in a place where we're starting to reach uh, herd immunity um, a little earlier than we had anticipated. I'm being optimistic about this, but a lot of vaccines are getting into people's arms. The top states for immunization are a little surprising. And um, the good news are the Dakotas, where I think what happened is they had such a bad outbreak, almost everybody knew somebody who died. And, you know, they're rural states, they're not heavily populated. And I think that the fear of God got into a lot of people to get immunized. The Dakotas are doing very well, which is good news. And the upper Midwest, um, which had had a bad outbreak over the winter. New England uh, as well, and Connecticut, um, with the exception of New Hampshire and Maine, not quite as good. And then New Mexico and Alaska doing particularly well in terms of their outreach and getting shots into people's arms. So. You know, we're, we're, we're getting there. Now, unfortunately, there's some states in the southeast that are really lagging, Georgia uh, particularly, and, and it just needs to get better um, or, or we will have serious outbreaks there. Now, there, this is a summary of the vaccines. I wanted to, to show you so we've, where we are in terms of vaccines that I think will be coming into our marketplace. You've got the mRNA vaccines in the top there, Moderna, Pfizer, 
And then the J&J vaccine is going to be is coming out. We're going to be able to use it. It'll be single dose, 18 and above. But the other one that is going to be in the United States shortly, I believe, is the Novavax uh, protein subunit vaccine that's recombinant. Um, I know they're putting in for emergency use authorization. So I think come spring, we'll probably have four different vaccines available to push out to people, which will be good. And the efficacy you can see of the Novavax, they listed there, was around 90% in the UK after two doses. It dropped in South Africa, like all the other vaccines have, but it was very efficacious um, in a similar country to the United States. So I'm optimistic a two-dose Novavax will be um, uh, approved probably in the next two months. There's new data on COVID immune response. There's been a lot of questions about cancer patients. This just came out uh, last month um, and uh, it looked at acute immune response in uh, cancer patients to COVID. And there's a very nice diagram that sums up the whole paper, which I sort of like this now, they're putting this online. And you can see with solid cancers, they basically saw some prolonged viral shedding, but they seroconverted and seemed to become immune to COVID. The hematologic cancers, not so much. So people on chemo for acute hematologic cancers, prolonged viral shedding, and there was delay or no seroconversion. And um, there was sort of the sustained immune dysregulation that we know happens in hematologic malignancies. So I think we're going to get a little smarter about which cancer patients are at higher risk and probably need to have strategies. Maybe it will be monoclonals. Maybe it will be convalescent uh, plasma, you know, or something every few months for these patients until their chemo is done to prevent them from getting COVID. But active vaccination may not be as good in the hematologic cancer. So we're learning more and hopefully it'll change our clinical strategies as we move forward. There's a big MISI update uh, for, for uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children from the EU. It's a multi, they gathered a bunch of papers and, and looked at hundreds of kids and pulled it all together and, and it's useful. And there's another nice diagram, um, you know, a thousand MISI cases all had fever about 80% had some cardiovascular presentation, half of them respiratory, a lot of GI, which we know, we've seen that, but the outcomes are interesting. About 70% ended up in the ICU for four days, and with the mortality overall was very low, but it's still 1.9% for MISI in the EU, and it's, it's not trivial for a pediatric disease. Uh, it's significant. And then about 86% had a severe disease course and about 14% mild. So this is a serious disease still, and I think we're learning more about it. This was a nice collection um, of data from hundreds of kids in the EU, and it was different than Kawasaki disease in terms of these presentations. So um, keep watching this, and, and uh, this paper uh, just came out last month. Now, this was an intriguing, provocative paper from Lancet. I got, I've gotten a bunch of emails about this. And what they did, it's, it's a meta-analysis, mathematical modeling, okay? They didn't actually do these experiments. It's mathematical modeling. And if you look on the right where it says PCR in the blue lines, the thought was at day seven, they had captured by PCR, if your PCR was negative by day seven, you'd captured most of the potential infectious COVID patients. So the question was, and it was very provocative, would seven days isolation and a negative PCR be enough to declare a person free of COVID? However, you can see on the right, you, you actually miss, you know, 
a bunch of people who actually don't turn PCR positive till after day seven. So this was provocative. It didn't convince me that we should change to day seven and a negative PCR, but just be aware that's out there. In my opinion, it's still a little risky. When you look at these data, you're gonna miss a bunch of people. Another important thing, and this is again, I, I um, encourage you in the community to keep sending me this, uh, uh, things to look at. This was sent in from our, some of our people in the Connecticut children's community. Uh, there've been some false positive mammograms after immunization. And what happens is there seems to be some lymphadenopathy. We know that happens because the spike protein gets a vigorous immune response after it's made after you get the RNA vaccine. And um, this has resulted in some very scared people who had false positive mammograms that weren't really cancer. That was just lymphadenopathy after immunization. So there are now two recommendations. I can't tell you which is right. Um, there's one group suggesting that we delay mammograms for four to six weeks after immunization. Um, and there's another group that says, well, do the mammogram anyway, just tell them you got immunized and then we'll figure out whether it's a false positive or not. I, I can't tell you which is the right recommendation, just we need to be alert to this issue and manage it. Important, and thank you uh, for submitting this one. Now, IL-6 receptor, um, anti-IL-6 receptor monoclonals, there's been a lot of stuff on this, and there were two papers that came out that basically, I, I didn't find it helpful in that one study suggested little or no effect on clinical status or mortality in hospitalized patients who got anti-IL-6 receptor uh, therapy. But another study showed improved outcomes if you were critically ill in the ICU and you got anti-IL-6 receptor therapy. So to me, this is still out there and it may turn out that sicker patients should get it. And perhaps those who are not very sick, it's not gonna change their course. Stay tuned, but two papers came out with slightly different conclusions in the same week. Anti-vaccine disinformation. You know, I, um, I'm glad it seems to me a lot of people are moving beyond this, but this is a new campaign. Look at this big pharma whistleblower, dangers of mRNA vaccine, and you can see the vial now has poison on it. You know, I, to me, this is a malicious and designed to create fear in someone who perhaps hasn't looked at the data and is not sophisticated. And I think um, it's a terrible disservice and it's also completely untrue. It's not just not factual. So, you know, we're in a culture now where you can just push out anything, even if it's not factual, and it's okay. So it's out there. We need to address it. Some of our patients have seen this stuff, and we need to be consistent, talk through it, not judgmental, talk through it, give them the facts, and try to guide them to the right decision to get immunized. We have other problems. You know, we have um, states that are just not aligned with facts. Here's a great, this is Governor Greg Abbott, Texas. All statewide mandates are rescinded and capacity limits. You wanna to go to the bowling alley with 200 people, we're good, okay? So here's the problem with that. Um, Texas has a lot of cases still. I think it was 5,000 new cases yesterday and only 7.2% of Texans are fully vaccinated. So it's just, you know, it doesn't make any sense. What I would have thought is let's get our vaccination rate up in Texas and when we hit, make it, make a number, 50%, I'll make it up. 50% have gotten one dose. We're gonna open up. Okay, I can live with it. That makes sense. You know, we have data, we're, we're gonna get herd immunity. We're gonna, when you have people not immunized, one of the worst in the country for immunizations, and there are 5,000 cases a day, and we're gonna open up everything. And then what he said, um, I'll show you, which, which is even more confusing for people. Um, 
In a jubilant press conference, Abbott said the mask mandate any business restrictions would sunset next Wednesday. But then he said people should still take the same precautions they've been taking for the past year. So if I were living in Texas, I wouldn't know what the hell to do. Because the precautions where you wear a mask and you don't go to the bowling alley or, or whatever. And, and now he's saying, well, you can. Any restrictions are off. So it's very confusing and it's not helpful, if I may be so bold as to say. And in fact, here is the Texan data from March 3rd. They had 4,781 new cases in one day, an increase from the previous days. So it is the wrong time and place to have done this in Texas. They're the second largest state in the country. And this is going to be a problem for the entire United States because people get in cars and planes and travel. And if the variants take off in Texas, it will be spread all over the country. So it is what it is, but this kind of decision-making that's not based on data um, is a problem for us as a country. And finally, in response to Governor Abbott's decision, which was not science and fact-based as far as I can tell, um, Breitbart News said it was really the Hollywood celebrities that caused the problem because they were so angry at Governor Abbott for lifting the mask mandate. You got to read this article and then you can look at their topics, the Cuomo scandals, Emperor Biden and the Hollywood hate. So, and don't forget communist China there. So, you know, people are getting all sorts of inputs and unfortunately, you know, again, our job is to be consistent, fact-based, don't get emotional and really help guide people to a better place because they're getting terrible mixed messages out there uh, in this country still. So our journey of hope, and it is a journey of hope, a successful journey because our, um, our immunization rates are moving so well in the right direction. Our rapid ebb in cases has stalled. There may be a resurgence happening and I worry it could be the more contagious strains, but our vaccination effort is really moving ahead well. Two million doses given yesterday. We have a lot of vaccine hitting the pipeline right now. And so the country's around 20% of everyone getting one dose. We're, we're moving in the right direction a lot faster than we'd hoped. This is good. Connecticut has lower community spread than a few months ago. Excellent immunization levels that are getting better every day. But our community decreases have leveled off. We gotta watch this closely. The governor's loosening up restrictions. I think we need to continue to be very cautious. Surveillance for mutants shows it's spreading across the U.S. It may cause a resurgence the coming months, but I'm optimistic because we're immunizing so many high-risk people that death rates and hospitalizations may be much, much lower if we do have a resurgence because of our immunization efforts. So that's all good news. I'm really pleased to sign this off now uh, to our new cardiologist and uh, to learn where we need to go as kids come back to school. So thank you for your attention today. Look forward to questions in a few minutes. Thank you, John. And uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. James Enos, who's uh, our brand new cardiologist. Uh, he uh, is a resident of Glastonbury, Connecticut. That's a good place to be, although he's doing a lot of his work in, in Fairfield County down south. So he's traveling a lot. So he's probably listening to uh, the, the old uh, John Shriver podcast from a year ago, just to catch up on everything he has said. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm teasing, of course. Uh, James did his uh, medical school at Brown University, so local, uh, and then his fellow in pediatric cardiology at Children's National. Uh, he was uh, also a pediatric resident at New York Presbyterian as part of the uh, Cornell system. And uh, he um, 
has been a uh, an attending physician at Nicholas Children's Health System in Miami-Dade, and then we're very lucky that he agreed to uh, come up to uh, Connecticut Children's, help us develop our uh, our strategy to uh, be more available within the uh, Fairfield County area, and he has done that already. I think many of you have already connected with him. I think he's going to be a formidable presence in, in that area, uh, as well as here at Connecticut Children's. And uh, you, I think you will like him a lot. You've seen him in some of the videos that we have presented. Um, I think he's one of the likable cardiologists. All of them are, of course. And James, you're going to have a, this is a very important topic that we get a lot of questions uh, about when to do EKGs, when to do echoes, and what to do about these kids who've had COVID-19. So go ahead. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Thank you, Dr. Schreiber. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I agree. I don't want to say it's a pleasure in general to have to present on this topic, but uh, I've enjoyed tuning into this series myself. I think it's very important and very helpful. And so hopefully this presentation uh, contributes in a meaningful way today. <clears throat> so I'm here today to talk about return to play following COVID-19. And this is a really pressing topic at, topic at the moment. Uh, those of us on the front lines in pediatrics and cardiology are just facing this day in and day out. Uh, and it's important to kind of think through uh, and have a practical approach. So I wanna provide some background on uh, where we've been and kind of where we're at now with this uh, and talk through a practical approach following the AAP guidelines uh, for screening on sports participation after COVID-19 infection. So with that in mind, uh, screening prior to sports participation after COVID-19 infection, it's really important to consider that within the broader context of health screening in young athletes. And to remember that there's many, many health benefits to participation in sports for children. Uh, we'll outline some of the challenges and considerations for a screening program. Uh, and this conversation will be guided by professional society recommendations, including from the American Academy of Pediatrics and American College of Cardiology. And we'll talk about future directions as new data emerge. <clears throat> so the American Academy of Pediatrics has been releasing interim guidance on return to sports. Uh, and most recently, there was an update just this week. So this is something that's evolving and changing, just like everything else as new data comes out with COVID-19. But on Monday of this week, uh, they updated the guidelines. So it'll, it's, it's a timely uh, point to have this discussion today. Um, and they make it a point to start with um, the many well-described benefits of sports participate, participation and to keep those in mind. So there's the obvious benefits of uh, improved cardiovascular fitness and maintaining a healthy BMI, but there's also so many important psychological benefits to uh, participation in sports, uh, as well as benefits of socialization with teammates and coaches, um, and the benefits related to having a structured routine, as well as immune system benefits of exercise that uh, shouldn't be overlooked in, a in the time of a pandemic. But long before uh, COVID-19 was here, um, we've been performing pre-participation physical evaluations, and it's important to consider how COVID-19 really fits into that broader scheme. 
So the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, along with many other important stakeholders, including the American Academy of Family Physicians and Society for Sports Medicine, among others, um, have a well-defined guideline for the pre-participation physical evaluation. And really what this is, is a targeted medical history and family history and physical examination with emphasis on the musculoskeletal and cardiovascular systems. And of course, uh, one of the main goals of this is to identify conditions um, that, that may carry a life-threatening risk with sports participation. So, our, so for example, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But some other important goals of this are really to maximize participation and maximize safe participation in sports, to remove any unnecessary restrictions on participation, and to treat conditions that may interfere with optimal performance or um, may result in injury if, if sports continues with that. So make sure that those are appropriately treated. And it's important to keep in mind that now that COVID-19 is here and it's certainly on, on, on the top of mind for everybody, um, unfortunately, the other bad actors that can cause sudden cardiac events with exercise really haven't gone anywhere. So just to kind of touch on those, um, we need to keep in mind the primary arrhythmias, long QT syndrome uh, is probably the most um, kind of one that people think of with that. Myocarditis, which is particularly relevant in our conversation of COVID-19, uh, cardiomyopathy, anomalous origin of the coronary arteries, and then others. So how does COVID-19 sort of fit into this? Ultimately, the concern is for uh, potential COVID-related myocarditis triggering sudden cardiac events in athletes. And we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus binds to ACE2 receptors that are abundant in the lungs, but also on the heart muscle cells themselves, on the myocardium. But that being said, the mechanism of myocyte injury might not be as straightforward as the virus binding, invading the cell and causing breakdown. It may be even more related, or at least in part related to um, the systemic inflammatory response and cytokine storm that we see in patients who have had more severe illness. And we see evidence of cardiac involvement in a variety of ways. One is elevated troponin, others are altered um, cardiac testing. Uh, like uh, altered function on echocardiogram, changes on MRI. Um, and we, we see this with some frequency in patients with more severe illness, but in patients who have had mild illness or asymptomatic illness, uh, the, the amount of cardiac involvement is, is really unknown, uh, but likely to be low. So it's important to remember that in the, the setting of a rapidly evolving knowledge base and changing governmental and public health uh, recommendations that um, screening programs are, are really fraught with complexity and nuance. And that's led multiple bodies to release different guidelines that have been sort of revised and changed over time. And it's it's been sort of a flood of information in many ways. Um, so for example, the American College of Cardiology has weighed in. Of course, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, societies for exercise medicine and sports medicine, the American Heart Association, and others. And in kind of uh, sort of sifting through all the recommendations that are out there, I think it's helpful to consider where do they align and where is there some variation. Um, so 
the guidelines largely align in the idea of starting with an assessment of the degree of symptoms. So taking all patients who have had COVID-19 and dividing it into mild or asymptomatic, moderate or severe, and then using that to guide the appropriate screening and evaluation and return to play criteria. Um, important places where they've differed has been a potential age discriminator for who to screen. Some guidelines recommend screening only after a certain age, whereas others have no um, age recommendation at all. Uh, the timing of infection is something that's important to consider. So a recent infection about a month ago is different than somebody you know, a teenager who had infection six months ago who now just wants to start sports because things are reopening. There's some discrepancy on how to define play. So um, some guidelines will say that it really is only applicable to competitive athletics, whereas, whereas others include even physical education at school. And there's varying opinions on the appropriate degree of cardiac evaluation. So the cardiology group at Connecticut Children's, um, partnering with pediatricians throughout the state, has developed this uh, screening algorithm, which, is, uh, which follows the guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And that, ye that yellow box there up, up at the top is important, just to say that the guidelines are subject to change periodically as we get more information and um, not meant to supplant uh, clinical judgment because that is really paramount um, in these situations where we're learning new things all the time. But um, as, a, as a general sort of practical approach, uh, we chose to include basically school-age children, so children five years and older. And the idea behind that is that school-age children and children less than five years are generally not participating in rigor rigorous sport uh, and therefore aren't totally appropriate for a return to play screening. But all patients who have um, tested positive for COVID-19 should uh, do the following, which is isolate per the CDC guidelines, uh, obtain evaluation by a healthcare provider prior to returning to sports, and uh, be both 10 days out from their first positive test and greater than 24 hours um, fever-free. And then um, for certain ages, for, for older kids, follow a graded return back to exercise rather than just going fully back in right away. So, um, so after, uh, after that, we, we divide into groups of asymptomatic or mild uh, symptoms of COVID-19 infection, moderate, and then severe. And so um, the definition of, of moderate uh, has changed over time with different guidelines, but seems to be sort of coalescing around uh, this. So greater than four days of, of fever um, of 100.4 or higher, uh, four, four more days of myalgia, chills, or significant lethargy, requiring non-ICU hospitalization without a diagnosis of MISC, and then again, based on uh, clinical judgment. And then for severe symptoms, that includes requiring ICU admission, having a diagnosis of MISC, having previously abnormal cardiac screening, or again, clinical judgment. And um, the box in the bottom left is important in talking about cardiac signs and, or symptoms because these are specifically referenced in the AAP guidelines. Um, 
So they mention uh, chest pain, which is consistent with a cardiac etiology. So for example, exertional chest pain, shortness of breath out of proportion to URI symptoms, uh, new onset palpitations and syncope that's not clearly associated with a vasovagal cause. Okay, so what do we do for each group? Um, and, and again, this is from the, uh, this is following with the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines, uh, but for the asymptomatic or mild infections, a recommendation, uh, the recommendation is for an evaluation in the primary care office for cardiac signs and symptoms. If they're present, then it's recommended to consider an ECG, but refer to cardiology to guide additional evaluation um, and return to play criteria based on the signs and symptoms that are present. If the answer is no, um, then those patients can return to play uh, following routine sports screening. Okay, so how about for moderate symptoms? Again, um, the recommendation is for an evaluation in the primary care office, but this time with an electrocardiogram, the ECG. Um, if, if things are negative, negative cardiac signs and symptoms with a normal ECG, then again, return to play following uh, routine sports screening. But if um, either or are positive, so if there's positive signs or symptoms or an abnormal ECG, it's again recommended to refer to cardiology to guide further evaluation based on um, the signs or symptoms and um, help determine return to play criteria. And then for severe symptoms of COVID-19 infection, again, these are patients who have uh, been in the ICU or had a diagnosis of MISC or already had abnormal cardiac testing. Um, so these are patients who are sort of presumed or have had evidence of myocarditis. And in general, the recommendation is restriction from activities for three to six months, and that'll be guided by cardiology. So oftentimes these patients they should already have cardiology follow-up in place. Uh, and further testing may include cardiac MRI, uh, stress testing, rhythm monitoring, and that'll help guide uh, the return to play criteria over longitudinal evaluation. So after, um, after this uh, sort of screening process has taken place and kids are getting ready to get back into sports, um, what, what's the approach? What's a safe approach to get back into sports? So the American Academy of Pediatrics has a has an age discriminator for this, and they basically recommend that for less than 12 years old, those kids can progress back to sports according to their own tolerance. Um, for children 12 or older, they should follow a, a graded return to play. Um, and they specifically reference this um, sort of graded return to play over seven days uh, in the guidelines, uh, which are easily accessible um, online. And it's just really important to also counsel families on signs and symptoms to look out for. Those are those same signs and symptoms that we discussed before. Chest pain, palpitations, new onset symptoms, um, and to be on the lookout as they return to play um, so they could circle back with their, their healthcare providers if needed. So where do we go from here? Um, there's uh, lots of further investigations going on into the basic pathophysiology and mechanism of heart involvement with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, 
there's important database research underway. This is just one. Um, the NCAA, for example, has a database of over 3,000 collegiate athletes who've tested positive for COVID-19. We're expected to um, have data on that in the next few weeks to months. Um, and as we gain more data, it's really important to circle back on our screening algorithms so we can improve the identification of patients who are truly at risk, um, but optimize the efficiency, the equity, and our resource utilization um, as we move forward. So with that, I'd like to include these references and uh, just say thank you very much for having me. Thank you, James. That was terrific, uh, real clear. And I want to point uh, to everyone that we uh, we have on our internet or internet. We have the the COVID nineteen cardiology return to play algorithm, which is part of our clinical pathway, uh, which we will be sending or we have already sent, perhaps. Uh, so <laughs> Liz is already ahead of of the schedule and putting it here. So go ahead, and we we have a bunch of questions for for both of you, um, and we'll begin with uh, so. John, if you can go back up to the podium. Uh, first of all, there were a lot of comments about the question we asked about whether we want to continue to host this. The answer was unanimously yes. Um, they 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 will would have a withdrawal without Dr. Shriver on a Friday morning. So they 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 speak a lot of love here sent to you, John. So thank you for what you're doing. Uh, John, can you speak of the Brazilian variant? Uh, any issues with that in the U.S.? Sure. Um, by the way, I wanted to thank. That's probably the clearest direction I've heard so far about what to do about kids going back after COVID for play and, um, and for sports. So thank you. It's really good. And please do check that internet site. If you have questions, it's really nicely laid out. So terrific. Brazilian strain. We don't know as much about it as the UK strain. We know that in one of the larger provinces of Brazil, it's spread a lot and it seems to be infecting people who've had COVID already several months before. So that suggests that the neutralizing antibody and T-cell immunity that they generated from a previous strain of COVID is not effective after a while for this new P1 strain. We don't know as much about it as we do with the UK and the South African strain because the vaccines have been tested a lot in South Africa. So we have some idea of efficacy with that strain. It's not as much uh, with the P1 strain in Brazil. So we're gonna have to watch and see. It is a little bit, I know it's been detected in one or two states in the US. We're gonna need to watch and see what that does. So that's the best I can answer that right now. And a follow-up to that, yeah. what about the New York City strain that we've just heard about? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, uh, I, I don't think anyone understands yet. I mean, as I said, that strain hasn't spread enough to know whether the vaccines don't work or do work. I'm pretty confident right now that the vaccines that we have out there are covering most of the variants quite well. And even in the South African strain, if you look at um, ICU admission and, and death, there was very strong protection against that even in South Africa with that strain circulating. So I don't think we need to change course. We need to move ahead. However, I anticipate there will be a booster that will cover a variety of variants probably next year or late this year. I have no question that vaccine companies are already working on it. It makes sense. And I do believe it will be available if we need it by the end of the year. So stay tuned. Okay. Um, James, this is for you then. Uh, so what about participation in play uh, for not organized sports? Any restrictions? And, you know, just, kids just want to go play and I guess yeah. not, not in the street because they don't play in the street, okay. but, you know, wherever they go now to play. Right. It's a great question and just a really practical question. You know, I think um, 
I, I think, for example, uh, this this wasn't so top of mind for a while, but now it is that um, that uh, that kids are getting back into sports now that it's even a possibility, and it could be that really they've been you know playing basketball down the street for for many months, and so I do think it's a little bit individual. I think you have to kind of hear the story and and understand the situation for for each patient. Um, the the guidelines that were released for the American Academy of Pediatrics, at least, don't have a strong sort of distinguisher on is this for just competitive athletes? Is this just for you know varsity level sports, or does this include even just playing, um, you know, on, on the street with friends? I think um, one thing to consider is that there's the the age discriminator for 12 years. Uh, of age or, or younger. So for those patients, the recommendation is just to can, just to progress back to sports according to their own um, their own uh, ability, um, just kind of getting back into things. Um, for patients who are a little bit older, if they if they've had um, COVID nineteen, particularly with moderate symptoms, um, you know, more than mild, uh, talking through that sort of staged progression back into full participation with whatever it is that they do, whether it's pick up basketball games, um, you know, at the park, or if it's a, or if it's a competitive sport that they're a part of, is helpful uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that just in general, um, we're all a bit deconditioned over the last year. We haven't been participating in sports and, and such as much as usual. And so it'll help prevent any sort of overuse injuries, any musculoskeletal injuries and, and things like that. But it'll also help um, with a staged progression. If there are some mild symptoms, um, maybe those will be kind of picked up before return to, to full play. Um, so I think whether it's um, more recreational versus more, um, more structured or competitive athletics, having that sort of um, individual but practical approach, keeping in mind the stepwise progression is, is a helpful way to go. Sort of follow up to that question. What about a kid who had COVID-19 months ago and has been playing club sports, but never went through the return to play protocol and now is due to play organized sports? Do they need a formal return to play? Right. Great question. Yeah. So, um, you know, in thinking about, in thinking about this, um, even patients who have had severe um, infection uh, symptoms, the recommendation is for uh, activity restrictions for three to six months. And of course, that's based on their evaluation. But if things have improved, then then even they can return um, to play um, in three to six months. And so I totally understand this situation because um, sometimes people have been um, had had COVID infection, you know, six months ago, um, but now are just now looking to get back into their sports or have even really been participating in their sports over time. And it doesn't, you know, seem to make so much sense to put them through that that process. But really what the recommendation is, is just for a routine pre-participation evaluation. And if they had moderate symptoms to go ahead and add on the EKG. Um, so I think it's reasonable um, as we learn more to do those to do those more simple steps. And if anything's abnormal, then to follow that up with further evaluation. But if those things come back, um, those more routine things come back normal, then those kids are, are okay to keep on participating. We'll pass it to John. Is it uh, from one of our orthopedic surgeons? Nice, clear recommendations. <clears throat> However, college players have been required to get cardiologist clearance with EKG 
plus or minus echo, even if asymptomatic. Do you see this changing in the near future? Or is this based on NCAA being overcautious? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I think um, it's it's certainly reasonable as we're learning more and more to err on the side of caution. And I think that's what many of the societies have done, um, including medical societies, but also including things like the NCAA um, in terms of um, sort of being more inclusive for who, who we're screening and who we're testing. I do anticipate that as more data are available and more robust database data become available, um, that those recommendations will be refined and patients with asymptomatic or mild won't be going through the same screening as patients uh, with more moderate or severe. Um, but initially, I, I think um, the approach was more um, more inclusive, but we'll be able to refine that over time. Thanks. John, a couple of questions for you. Uh, any update on the vaccines for pregnant women? So uh, vaccines for pregnant women, um, a number of the pharma companies are immunizing in clinical trials right now, women who are pregnant. And I will say there seems to be, as I talk to my OB colleagues, more of a, an acceptance that it's a good idea to immunize women who are the pregnant. And um, uh, data hasn't come back from those clinical trials yet, but I've not heard of any issues. So I think, again, I'd stay back with, um, we know that women who are pregnant have a higher rates of getting severe COVID ending up in the ICU. Immunizing them would prevent it. Um, there has been, I'm not aware of any problems in a pregnant woman who's gotten a vaccine so far. Clinical trials are in progress. It's an individual decision with your OB team to decide whether to do that or not. The other thing I did present last week, we know that if you have antibodies, they will cross and protect uh, your child uh, at birth. So they, they do cross the placenta. So there are lots of reasons to get immunized if you're pregnant, but we are awaiting those data still from the pharma companies. John uh, from Ken Spiegelman. Dr. Fauci states that small groups of immunized family members should be able to get together, together without masks in the near future. Does that apply to medical colleagues in non-patient areas as well? Uh, you know, um, I'll stop off. At first, we'll say, I think I agree with, you know, agree with Dr. Fauci. I mean, uh, I think he's right. I think that um, in the near future and probably now, if everyone's immunized, no one has any symptoms um, and people gather and only immunized people are in the room, that makes sense. And um, the data would suggest because the RNA vaccines um, are so protective and the J&J &J vaccine as well. Uh, that we're going to do well with that suggestion. And the reality is also um, mental health and families, everyone needs to be able to move forward. So I think it's a good and safe suggestion. I'm less comfortable with healthcare providers in any healthcare environment getting together um, without protection right now because we don't know transmission yet. Many of our patients and families are unimmunized. So right now, if I happen to be an asymptomatic transmitter and I'm immunized and I run around, take my mask off and chit chat with people, and we unknowingly have several healthcare providers who are transmitting disease and our patients are unimmunized, we're putting our patients at risk. I don't wanna do that. I don't think we should do that. So I think currently we have to be very cautious in the healthcare facilities and in clinics, continue the vast majority of our protections, there are going to be some things that we'll probably ease up on. And I think that's different than six family members, all who are immunized, who decide to get together um, 
I think that's a different situation. So I separate those out, Juan. John, can you comment briefly on the long-haul long syndrome that's been described? This is something that I think um, when I, I hear people saying, oh, you know, it's just the flu and this and that, I mean, I, I think this is a very capricious virus. We do not understand why some people get very sick, others don't. We don't understand why a 40-year-old congressperson dies who has no risk factors from COVID. And most 40-year-olds don't. We do not understand this virus, and we do not understand there's a significant number of people who seem to have relatively mild, moderate COVID and just don't get better. They're tired all the time. They continue to have intermittent fevers. They're short of breath, and it goes on and on. We, this is clearly not a virus that's adapted to humans over decades. It's unpredictable. It's an animal virus that got into humans. It's unpredictable. We do not understand this. So that reinforces to me that I don't want young people and children to be infected with this virus if we can avoid it. We do not know the long-term outcome. You showed that excellent diagram binding to this ACE2 receptor that's in everything, all your blood vessels. And if you look at the post of people who've died of COVID, they have microemboli all over their brains. And I, it's possible that people who are relatively a mild disease also have widespread uh, damage because the virus binds this critical receptor. So I think it's an issue and it reinforces our need. Let's get everyone immunized and get the transmission of this virus down so that less people get infected and we'll have less chronic disease from it. All right, back to James' um, question. And Dr. Reynos, should, could, should college athletes see a pediatric or an adult cardiologist for clearance? Yeah. Um, I think either is fine. Um, honestly, I do. They're sort of in that border, borderline um, category. I think, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, pediatric cardiologists are really seeing this day in and day out. Um, but but the adult cardiologists are too. You know, they they have um, they have younger patients uh, in their office, and and they have you know people who are who have been affected with COVID, um, who've had moderate or severe symptoms in, in the age groups of the early 20s and 30s for sure. Um, so um, I, I honestly think either is appropriate. Um, another question for you. Many of or most pediatric practices do not have access uh, to EKGs uh, and or cardiologists interpreting EKGs. Can, can, where can we refer EKG, uh, to get an EKG with a cardiologist interpreting a report without having the patient actually requiring a cardiology consult? For example, could a 12-year-old with mild COVID symptoms who occasionally gets chest pain get an EKG without seeing a cardiologist? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, yes, um, there's a lot of utility in that. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think you outlined the perfect uh, sort of situation where, you know, one additional test um, could potentially be really helpful. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it would be sort of an easy test to get, um, just just to be able to get the ECG. It's not, it's not always the case. And I, I think, um, you know, it brings up an important point in general that uh, initially as the guidelines came out and they were sort of recommending more and more testing um, for more patients, uh, it, it's hard for it's hard for the access to that to really be um, to really be equitable and and easy. So um, you know, there's just certain areas of the country where those test things aren't aren't available um, as readily as they are in others. So um, so from a practical standpoint, um, I know at our offices, um, 
at a couple offices throughout the state, uh, we have EKG only appointments. Um, the cardiologists in our group read those the same day that they're done and certainly within 24 hours. So I know that um, there's resources available online of where those EKG only appointments uh, would be available. And um, and hopefully that's a practical, yeah. With our pediatricians, we'll provide some information online and then we'll, we'll send out a blast email of where people can get uh, EKGs uh, through our system to make it easy both in the Western Connecticut side and then here in the middle of the state. Um, question for, uh, for, let's see, there was another, there, were, there are a lot of questions. Uh, when would you do an echo? When would you do an MRI? Briefly, you have 15 seconds. Great. <laughs> um, so I think we would we would do an echocardiogram um, for for those patients that screen positive. So if there's positive cardiac signs or symptoms um, or uh, abnormalities on the EKG, um, suggestive of of COVID changes. So um, so for those things, we would we would definitely do that. Um, I think we have to be a little bit more thoughtful about who we do MRI on. Just um, because of the practicalities around it, but certainly patients who have had more severe illness, those who have been in the ICU, those who have had um, MISC with significant cardiac involvement, um, MRI has a lot of utility in those patients. Great, thank you. Uh, John, this is a couple of questions for you, and then we unfortunately we do have to close. There are a lot of questions that I haven't been able to answer, but we'll make sure that our providers actually provide those answers to you. Um, so, uh, so John, any... Uh, uh, it, you know, the, the question here is, uh, it, it, you know, do we, uh, what do we anticipate will happen uh, for, as the schools are opening up and there are more kids that are now ex potentially exposed, do you see a resurgence as a result of kids going back to school in Connecticut the way they're, they're going back now? Well, you know, um, most of the data has shown that transmission within the schools is less than what you see in the community. So I, I, I think those are pretty good data. So I'm, I'm, less worried that uh, we're going to have those problems. I was worried when we had unimmunized teachers who might be risk have risk and, and that I think is being corrected by the state. I know they've moved ahead to immunize uh, teachers now and I think I think we'll be in a good place if we immunize our teachers um, and we're moving out by age um, and uh, we'll be uh, getting to herd immunity in the state towards late summer and early fall, I think we'll be in better place. Also, I, I think by early fall, we'll probably have a vaccine available for 12 and above, and we'll be able to immunize that cohort in schools. So I think we're moving in the right direction, and I feel okay about it right now, particularly since we've moved to immunize our teachers now. Final thoughts, John? For I continue to get questions about things we should discuss. I'm very grateful to my cardiology colleague because the first time I know what to do in a very clear way when I get asked about kids going back to sports. It's on our, on our website as well. Please use it. And we'll see you next week. Um, thank you for what you do and be well. Thank you, everyone. Uh, just a, a reminder, on Tuesday, March 3rd, we'll have a, no, well, actually, it's not March 3rd. There's the next Tuesday. Uh, it's, it's a different March. Uh, we'll, be, we'll have an update on concussions. And now with the governor giving a green light that all sports will be uh, open uh, in, in Connecticut, especially the school age beginning, uh, I think, March uh, 16th or 17th, my guess is concussions will come back, unfortunately. But, so you need to learn about concussions. So please join us on Tuesday. And then next week, uh, we'll, we'll have uh, John back again where the Ask the Experts. And then we have 
um, a, a Jenny Radeski from the, uh, I think, the University of Michigan on kids and technology during the pandemic. That's going to be a really important topic. You know, what are kids doing with their time? I think they're all connected in some way. A lot of questions about that. So great topics. Again, uh, be safe. Uh, we're almost there. The, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, keep checking in with us, and we'll answer all the questions that we didn't answer and do it electronically. Thank you for joining. I'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye.